What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Finance Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner, Camden Okanati. Today, we are also very ha- happy to welcome our two guests, Josh Lippman and Alex Zabit. Josh is our first returning guest and the co-founder of Panther Capital. Alex is a political science major and the newest member of our media management team. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. I wanted to thank you for joining us and for everyone listening in. Thank you as well. Right. So my name is Josh Lippman, and thank you again for having me on this podcast. Enjoyed uh, being on it last time. I'm currently a junior at UC Santa Barbara, majoring in economics, and I love the school. I've been here for a year. Uh, I've had a deep passion for finance almost all my life. Started off by getting interested in the stock market, trading stocks, learned about fundamental analysis. Right now, I'm working on developing a, a, the only student-managed investment fund nonprofit that currently exists with Camden and Matthew. Uh, and that's something I'll discuss later on in the podcast as well. Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Zabit. I'm a 23-year-old political science major from UC Santa Barbara, recently graduated. I'm uh, currently hanging out in isolation, uh, bringing to you the political stuff that you read in the newsletter. Uh, Hopefully, I'm going to be expanding some of my writings into a full-blown political section, um, and uh, that'll give you guys a chance to get the, you know, kind of help you guys read the tea leaves of uh, the political system, the political world that we live in today. Thank you so much for listening. Awesome. Thank you guys for the introductions. This podcast is an overview of what has taken place in the last couple of months and what we predict will come. First, I want to state my opinion. There are two distinct ways you can view the market now. The first is you see the economy opening back up relatively soon. You see employment surging again, consumer spending and consumer confidence becoming positive, and overall business investment slash spending normalizing. So you decide to buy into the hardest hit industries, industrials, manufacturing, oil airlines, cruises, pressure metals, and storefront retail. The second is you see the economy getting worse than it is now and staying shut for a couple more months, even when the government and feds will do whatever it takes, ignoring moral hazard. Unemployment could get much worse. There could be more underlying liquidity and solvency problems, and the stock market can revisit its early March lows. In this, you'll become more defensive but smart, even though there would be an overall sell-off in all asset classes like we experienced in March. Some asset classes would fare better than others. We position in tech, e-commerce, biotech, and healthcare. One of the most interesting things I've observed in this market from tracking it every single day when it's open is Amazon has been hitting new all-time highs, even though other tech and other software companies have been laying off or furloughing their staff and cutting prices and losing sales. But Amazon is still doing well compared to Costco, Walmart, Target, and other storefronts. And if you've experienced the virus like I have, you've been waking up at 6 a.m., 
waiting in line at, in front of Target just to get toilet paper or paper towels. And Target and Costco and Walmart have been assumingly doing great because they're having huge lines and stocks are being emptying out in the first three hours of store opening. But Amazon is actually doing fairly well. So I want to know your guys' thoughts on why an e-commerce company like Amazon would be doing better than Walmart or Target, even though we've been seeing those players um, creating a lot of demand. So my thought on that is, I mean, that's exactly the reason is the case is Amazon is an e-commerce company and e-com companies are going to outperform right now. Uh, with the closure of retail stores, everyone is transitioning to buying goods and services online. And not only, I think, throughout the duration of the pandemic, but I also think that this is going to be a transition that we see coming out of it. Uh, where the biggest transition that we're going to see is in isolation, independence, and self-sufficiency. That's going to be reflected in our buying habits as well as all of our other habits. So we're going to become less globalized, more of a focus on isolation, buying things from our homes. I think we're going to see a lot more e-commerce sites, e-commerce stores, less retail. I think a lot of malls are going to close down. We're going to see far less of them. Uh, movie theaters are going to go out of business. And overall, we're going to tr see a transition towards buying goods and services online. So it doesn't surprise me that we see it now. And I think we'll continue to see it. So what you're saying is we should target e-commerce like Amazon, uh, JD.com, uh, Shopify. And uh, we've actually been experiencing this where uh, the latest issue is JCPenney. Um, previous in JCPenney, it was Toys R Us and Sears going bankrupt. And now we see potentially Macy's. Macy's having liquidity and solvency problems and they're having rumors um, declaring uh, Chapter 11 or, or going through the process of declaring Chapter 11. For the past two or three years, they've been closing most of their storefronts in the U.S. Um, so that could be interesting as well to see uh, these huge retailers or, or these REITs that buy into malls or these huge retailers um, going under. Uh, and to conclude my opinion, I truly believe in this market right now. There is no such thing as fundamental analysis. Maybe technical analysis where you could track uh, graphs and patterns in, in the trading of certain equities, but fundamental analysis, no. It's all based on irrational exuberance where people are trading based off of fear, based off of concerns of being liquid in the future, based off of their retirement needs. Will they have enough money to survive retirement if their portfolio goes under 50%? So what I've been hearing from successful investors and successful business people is they've been buying since March and they've been buying the uptrend as well. So um, if you're smart, um, it's either you stay out of the market you cost average at predetermined times or stare at your phone for every second when the market is open with nonstop stop losses and the flexibility to play the ups and downs. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment that, you know, right now the market long-term and short-term or long-term is going to be fine. Uh, we're poised well for economic prosperity in the long-term. You know, what's going on right now is a form of uh, 
a test, a stress test, you know, to see depends on how well we manage and adapt to what's going on and in the long term. And if you look at history, we always adapt and manage well uh, for events like this. One thing I would disagree on is I think fundamental analysis can be performed and does apply. Maybe not in the short term, over the long run. A lot of companies that we see right now are unjustifiably under valued and uh, oversold by the market uh, because of the short-term fear and panic separate from the perception of the underlying fundamentals that are affecting the price. So there's a lot of good buying opportunities. And that's where I agree with you that right now, the, the best move is to uh, dollar cost average going down, buy undervalued stocks, especially equities that uh, have stable incomes, stable cash flows, and healthy balance sheets are not over leveraged. Uh, a lot of the big companies that uh, we're going to see go bankrupt that otherwise have stable incomes and you know, look good from a financial perspective are going to go bankrupt and take a big hit simply because of their debt level. So you know, debt and over leverage and especially overexposure, like you said, in the retail companies to to retail and overexpanding that, uh, we're going to see a lot of companies die off. My overall market sentiment, and first I want to paint a bigger picture. So in the short term, in the next possibly one to two years, we're undoubtedly headed into a recession. We're not technically in one yet. Uh, we need a sustained you know, number of quarters where we experience a downturn, but we're headed into one. And the numbers are... We're going to have a $5 trillion loss in the U.S., $20 trillion worldwide. The, all of the numbers and economic metrics are most comparable to the, the Great Depression, 1930s. This is bigger than the recession. That being said, it's still manageable. Uh, and um, we're going to see a lot of adaptations and positive uh, societal, you know, changes coming out of this. Um, but as far as how this affects the retail investor, you know, first, we would have gotten to where we were at now, regardless of whether there was a coronavirus. Uh, if you look at our consumer debt service payments to income ratio over the past few years throughout the expansion, it's approached 2008 levels and 1986 levels, which is another year we had a recession. The impetus for any recession is always debt levels climbing too high such that people need to reel back in their spending to spend on debt service. And that causes uh, less spending in the economy, less income, businesses get less revenue, they need to lay people off, so it causes our economy to contract. In a black swan event, it happened to be the coronavirus that slashed that spending. And one thing to keep in mind is, you know, even though it was the coronavirus, we still have a high debt level that uh, burdens households and uh, businesses. And while they're losing their income, we still need to pay that debt back. The Fed and the federal government are cognizant of that. That's why we'd ha we've had a relief program. And a lot of that money is going to be allocated towards that debt service. So there's a lot of talk about inflation. 
and you know, short term we'll see inflation and dollar weakening. And dollar weakening is definitely a, a risk, you know, going into this. But it's unlikely that we're going to see any significant amount of inflation throughout the downturn. We're going to see a lot of deflation because businesses and uh, individuals are going to take their the money that they either get from the government or the small amount of income they have and spend it on debt service. So we're going to see deflation. The way that affects the retail investor is, you know, one of the assets that we most commonly hedge against systematic risk like this is, is gold. And the problem with gold is gold is very heavily correlated to real interest rate. Now, throughout recessions, one way that this recession is different than others is the Fed usually uses the rates, lowers the rates to prop the economy back up. They can't do this, do that this time. The rates are too low. So nominal, and that's nominal interest rate. Uh, so the rates can't go any lower. They can't use quantitative easing to prop asset prices up because demand for low rate bonds can only go so high. And the way that affect gold, affects gold is in a typical recession, gold goes up to hedge against uh, uncertainty. But it's also correlated to real interest rate and real interest rate is going to go up because deflation is going to go up. And it has a negative correlation to real interest rate. So there's a big possibility that we'll see gold go down. That's something that the, the retail investor should keep in mind. And also keep in mind diversification. You know, as you said, uh, day trading and fundamental analysis are not going to produce great results. And that's absolutely true. And instead of trying to isolate certain stocks or certain assets, uh, investors should focus more on diversification and, you know, if one asset class goes down, another one will go up and generate returns that way. While be cognizant of the effects that the downturn is going to have on assets. Uh, so another thing, one last thing investors should be cognizant of is great way to track industries that are either, you know, not impacted by the recession or maybe inflation hedge and, uh, systematic risk and hedged assets is through ETFs. A lot of ETFs that we're seeing, like leveraged ETFs, are uh, have an effect where the total loss that they experience is more compounded than the loss of the underlying asset because they're tracked on a daily basis. So that means that if an underlying asset, say gold, uh, goes down 10% um, and over and a triple leverage ETF for that asset uh, tracks that the triple leverage ETF could go more than more than three times percent down relative to the underlying one. So that's something investors should be cognizant of as well in buying ETFs. Overall, my long-term sentiment is, you know, what we're seeing right now is a stress test. Uh, and with any negative event that we see in the market, uh, whether it's a downturn or a depression or black swan event like this, if you look at history, we always come out of it well. Uh, we adapt, we change, our society changes, and uh, that's what we're going to see coming out of this. We're going to see some societal changes for better or worse, but in the long run, we're all going to be fine.
Josh, you make a very valid point, and I appreciate you explaining how gold is relevant and correlated with real interest rates and inflation. From my understanding and from um, my trading in the past couple of weeks, I've been trading uh, some silver, some gold, and some copper because these three precious metals have been torn apart due to businesses closing and stopping operations abruptly. Because these metals are used in the operations and manufacturing of many products, uh, varying from small devices to cars to jewelry to anything imaginable, they were hit hard. So that means uh, the miners had to stop, so supplies um, curbed, as well as demand stopped because these manufacturers and industrial manufacturers didn't need these materials anymore. But with the economy rebounding, as well as news and rumors and reports of the economy looking to start in the beginning of May or middle of May, um, I've been trading copper, silver, and gold. And demand has a lot to do with the price and with demand looking um, brighter again, the prices of these three assets have been returning well. But I do appreciate um, your explanation of why uh, gold is relevant with the interest rate and inflation. Um, Alex, what have you been seeing in the political space and where do you see this going in the future? So um, I, uh, I'm definitely going to be taking this uh, next little bit in a little bit of a different direction. You guys have been focusing largely on markets and demographics. I'm going to try to take this uh, sort of a step back and look at the domestic and international political direction. Um, I'm going to try to be pretty um, uh, nonpartisan in my analysis. I, I really am not trying to take a position or push my view on you. It's more just, uh, just from what I know about how politics works um, my experience in the political realm, you know, reading and researching what I do. Um, uh, these are kind of my predictions for the next few months. Um, so the coronavirus is a really interesting um, predicament for modern society. It's, it's something that affects everybody. Everyone has to be stuck inside. Everyone is government ordered to sit inside their homes. Um, but the only people who can really do that are uh, people who have enough savings and enough investments to be able to ride this out. Um, and it really kind of puts the focus on how inequality has sort of shaped modern society. Um, and it really exposes how the United States really doesn't have um, a public safety net like other countries. Um, well, we, the United States functions pretty well as a you know global superpower, let alone just a, a first world developed country. But um, our political system has really ground to a halt in terms of being able to respond to uh, this crisis. Um, it's, it's really interesting to note also just the, the ridiculous amount of economic aid that has been um, uh, that has that has been pushed into the economy. So during 2008, there was a, a trillion dollar stimulus package pushed into the economy. Um, as well as, you know, there were different banks and different parts of the economic sectors that were valued at tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions. Um, the, we've opened the taps now of something like five or six, tr 
trillion dollars in terms of uh, you know direct stimulus uh, toward our citizens, as well as um, uh, different business backing guarantees, um, and and it's really going to have a major impact on the political fortunes of our country. So um, we have an upcoming election uh, in November. Um, obviously, Republicans versus Democrats. Nothing new about that. Uh, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Um, it. I think one of the really interesting things about this crisis, and in general, a crisis like this is is really going to be a test of the competency and the effectiveness of uh, of, of a given presidency, um, especially with so close so close to the election. This might be the defining thing um, that uh, the defining event in Donald Trump's presidency that really. Um, showcases whether or not he's going to win. Um, generally, the United States, uh, there are more Democrats than there are Republicans in terms of registered voters. Um, Rep- Democrats are more clustered in urban areas. Republicans are more dispersed, obviously, in rural areas. And in general, the Electoral College gives a big boost to voters in rural areas. However, when the re- Democrats are able to um, uh, when the Democrats are able to mobilize and motivate their their voter base. Um, and if they have high turnout, that bodes very poorly for Republicans generally. The way that Republicans win, especially nowadays, is by depressing turnout overall. Um, if uh, uh, if Donald Trump is able to maintain his, uh, uh, his voter base and he's able to keep his supporters excited, then you know maybe he can pull through. But the fact of the matter is, is that the United States response to the crisis has been largely lackluster. I mean, the best countries overall have been Taiwan and South Korea. They shut down the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic in their country. They have no new cases, haven't had them for months. They're hanging out, they're chilling, their their economies are recovering, and they're doing much better. Um, and uh, but. The United States is not doing nearly as well as those countries. Even we now have the most cases in the of, of any country in the world. Um, now, maybe that was just inevitable. We're also the world's largest economy. We have some of the world's largest cities and one of the most dispersed in terms of development. You know, we have mil- several major metropolitan areas with more than a million people, whereas uh, you know, Europe, uh, European countries only have like they're oftentimes their capital city having more than a million people. Um, so maybe it was just uh, just inevitable the United States was going to be hit harder by this virus. But the fact of the matter is hospitals are running out of ventilators, um, beds are being taken up, and we haven't come up with an innovative solution that's been able to make this better. Um, I think the American public generally expects its government to come out and expects its industry to come out with exceptional um, solutions to problems. You know, we should be the best, the front of the pack. And when we're just the middle of the pack, when we're just responding just as well as Italy or France, I think that that's going to punish whoever's in charge of the federal government, which in this case is Donald Trump. Um, I think that overall, this is going to lead to a world that is more fragmented uh, and less engaged, which is overall going to be bad for world trade and bad for international finance. Trade is good. Um, for for making money and, and less trade is bad for anyone in the in any market. Um, so I think you're going to see uh, the United States also um, taking a step back and focusing more on on repairing its own uh, economic fortunes and economic capacity because I think this coronavirus is really going to hit um, the fortunes and the wealth of the middle class.
Um, obviously, people who, have, like I said, people who have savings and people who have um, assets are fine, but most Americans don't have any substantial savings. Um, and in order for people to ride this crisis out, they're going to need a lot more than a $1,200 check. Um, I mean, but at the same time, if we, we can't just restart the economy uh, just because, you know, I mean, if, if, if the economies reopen and a bunch of people, a bunch more people get sick and a bunch more people will die, whoever's in charge is going to be punished even more. And so I think one of the big things you're noted that, that we'll see um, is you, you'll see people like Donald Trump and different governors might talk about wanting to reopen the economy as soon as possible, just because, I mean, you know, people are running out of money. People need jobs. However, it, they, they also are terrified of how incompetent they will look if they suddenly open the floodgates and everybody catches the coronavirus. So I think what you're going to see is a more unstable world. You're going to see a harsher world um, in terms of democracy. Democracy is going to get harder after this. You're going to see more um, uh, populist figures rising in prominence. Um, one of the good things about the United States political system is that um, generally the the political can the presidential candidates are already chosen, um, and that kind of insulates the system itself from from more kind of populist instability than than other you know potentially European countries. But overall, the world is going to withdraw to itself, um, and I think that it's it's definitely without, without something some major change. At, at, in, the, in the United States or in the European Union leadership, um, you're going to see a much more fragmented world after this virus. Well, Alex, thank you for your take on that. I want to ask you, since you kind of foresee the world taking a step back after this coronavirus, maybe stepping more away from trade, global relations, obviously America is a huge international player. We haven't handled the crisis well. Um, We've kind of stepped off the world stage, even in the years leading up to this, uh, while at the same time, the U.S. is cutting um, funding for the WHO. We're seeing China and Russia send aid across the world. So long term, what do you think this will say about America kind of on the world stage? Well, I mean, again, I think it's the direction that we're going right now. I don't know if it's indicative of where we're going in the future, but just because, I mean, Donald Trump has been so unique in his, uh, his leadership style and his objectives in terms of modern presidents. So it could be that what he wants and what he says is, a sh is, is just going to be as long as his presidency. Um, and he is not a sure thing, uh, in this upcoming election. I'm not saying he, he should or shouldn't be president. Uh, I'm merely stating that, I mean, you know, look, that there are a lot of Democrats out there, or almost every Democrat doesn't like Donald Trump, and a good chunk of the Republicans are not a fan of Donald Trump either. So if all of them unite and elect someone and elect Joe Biden, Joe Biden's more of an old style U.S. politician. Maybe he brings the United States back to the world stage. You know, it's 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 hard to say. Um, I think what we're going to see after this crisis is is either the United States engaging far less or the United States engaging the same amount. However, it's going to be fighting with countries like China more and more for global interference and 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 uh, uh, or global influence. Um, and entities like the EU are also going to have to step up to the plate or be swallowed up by the U.S. or China uh, in a, in a more fragmented world. If uh, I hope that answers your question. That does. That was perfect. Thank cool. you, Alex. Absolutely. Now we're going to dive into the market. So in every newsletter, we have a section called the market where we put a bunch of 
sorted different data into this one section in bulletproof form. So the first is we just experienced a pop in the everything bubble and QE infinity. So FinTwit is calling this the everything bubble. Josh, what do you think this means? What is the everything bubble? We've been experiencing a expansion for the past 10 plus years. And finally, this may be the pop. What do you think? Is this the pop? It is the pop. And the bubble that we've seen is the result of the massive amount of credit that's been provided to the economy. And characteristic of every expansion and every bubble that we've seen in history, it always happens such that uh, there's a lot of credit available, there's a lot of money available, a lot of borrowing. That causes asset prices to go up beyond their justifiable value in all asset classes, real estate, stocks. And we've seen this to uh, a significant degree in the stock market that's currently being corrected. So we'll see it, uh, and we're even seeing it now with uh, the relief that's been provided with uh, the credit expansion that we've seen in the past few weeks. That's caused the market to shoot up beyond what makes sense for the current circumstances. And it's likely we'll continue to see it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more relief in the coming months. Uh, the, the government just exhausted their PPP loan program, but many businesses won't be able to survive until July without more loans. So I'm sure we'll see expanded credit, expanded loans, and simply as a result of the spending that loans and expanded credit provide, we'll see increased asset prices. Uh, you were, we were talking about gold earlier, and you mentioned that one of the reasons that we've seen an increase in gold prices, or decrease rather, another asset, uh, you know, commodity inflation hedge assets is uh, the demand and the supply and demand changes. Well, one thing to consider when it comes to all asset classes and especially commodities like gold or uh, other assets like gold is there's a variety of different factors that affect them. And they all have diverging and contrasting effects. And some of them have larger effects and some of them have smaller effects depending on the circumstances that we're in. So one big effect that we're seeing on the markets and on gold prices and on other asset prices is uh, credit expansion. Though throughout the duration of this downturn, uh, we're going to see asset prices continue to go down, especially the stock market. Uh, very high possibility we'll see gold continue to go down, not just because of supply and demand, but because of the other factors that it's correlated with. I want to touch up on two things you mentioned. First, you mentioned the SBA PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program that the feds agreed to and funded. So this past week, they, um, they hit their mark. Uh, the net approved dollars of $342,277,999,103 have been achieved. So the loan count of how many loans were approved and how many businesses got the funding uh, equal to 1,661,367 businesses. And the lenders who were able to 
distribute all of these funds equal to around 5,000. Now, with the 1.66 million loans through the Paycheck Protection Program, 30.7 million small businesses in America, only 5.4% of these 30.7 million received funds before the program ran out of money. This means that 94.6% of these small businesses received no funding at all. So yes, you are right that they will most likely have to pull more credit to be able to fund these businesses. During the initial sell-off in March, we saw a huge liquidity problem. This means that investors, individuals, and others were having a huge problem with finding the available cash to be able to fund either their margin calls or their business operations. So these businesses started selling off all of their assets, ranging from municipal bonds to gold to treasuries to junk bonds, everything they could get their hands on, they were selling to be able to get cash. Cash was very um, prominent and in high demand. So this is also a reason why gold decreased in price and then started to rebound because gold is usually referred to as a hedge because it's a real asset. But Josh, you're explaining that you see gold lowering in price in the near future due to deflation. Deflation is one of the biggest risks that uh, we may be seeing in the future. It's a real threat. It generally occurs when people are not spending money. Uh, and I'd wager that bad deflation is more significant than inflation. If I knew that the price of something was going to be lower tomorrow, wouldn't I wait until tomorrow to buy it? Or maybe even the next day? And this is what we're seeing right now, where people are not spending. And because people are not spending, businesses are lowering the prices of their goods and services. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And one thing I want to say, just one more thing about gold, that liquidity crunch and the sell-off of gold and other assets... Uh, to be more liquid is a great point for the different factors that affect the price of gold. And the main reason I'm sure that gold is going to go down uh, during this downturn is uh, because the environment we're, that we're in is rates are cannot go any lower and gold is negatively in correlated to real interest rate. So that means that real interest rate can't go lower, sending gold up, because the nominal interest rate is already at zero. So when we have deflation, that'll send the real interest rate up and send gold down. That's just one factor that affects gold, but it's a major one. Now to continue, also in financial news, we've seen a lot of talk about share buybacks. Share buybacks and dividends have historically been used to distribute earnings back to shareholders when the board of the company believes they don't have a better use for the excess cash. Recently, this has been a problem due to all these companies asking the government for a bailout. They've been practicing share buybacks by buying back their stock in billions and billions of dollars. And the argument of it is, if these companies have had the cash to be able to buy back their stock, 
and why does the government need to bail them out? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that question be asked a lot. And I think it's a really valid question because obviously the government's money, it's our money, it's taxpayer money that we've been paying into these corporations. And ever since 2008, really, in the last financial crisis, the U.S. government has kind of sent the message like that these industries and these companies, the people behind them, can be more or less as reckless as they want to be because at the end, end of the day, since they're so essential to how our economy functions, U.S. taxpayers will bail them out. So I think that's why Boeing, for example, felt that they could buy back billions of dollars over the past few years in their stocks. And then knowing that if something happened, they have a pretty good shot of being bailed out, but especially large banks, uh, financial investment firms as well, that are kind of crucial to the way our economy runs. I think that they they knew that this would be coming, but they knew that they kind of had this parachute to fall back on. And another question to ask is, why is it the U.S. taxpayers' responsibility to bail out these companies when they have never had our interests in mind? So when they buy back stock, it benefits the company itself. That's another form of raising the stock price or, or initiating more return for their shareholders. Yeah. What I believe in is let capitalism run its course. Companies will start managing their risk better without the safety net of knowing the government will bail them out in the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would be great. But unfortunately, these massive companies, um, again, especially banks, like I said, they're fundamental to the way our economy works. So when you have them fail, you know, when you have companies, again, like Boeing with thousands of employees all across the United States that are not only important for employing those people, but also because they build rockets, they build military equipment, they build things that are, you know, top secret and fundamental to how the government operates. Of course, they're going to get bailed out when they get into trouble because there's not another choice. They can't, the U.S. government can't turn around and buy an Apache helicopter or the latest jet from their next competitor the next day. You know, those things take sometimes 10, 20 years to develop. So of course, these corporations are going to get bailed out when the economy, the U.S. government, the military all rely on them. Yeah, it's a unique set of circumstances. I think there's two separate issues. Uh, One is the idea of stock buybacks and companies doing them at all and the perceived evil of that. And I'll touch upon that. But separate from that, Uh, these companies getting bailed out and then the companies using their bailout money to do buybacks. Now, it's in any set of circumstances, and obviously this one's unique, my sentiment is there should be as little government intervention as possible. Uh, In this case, it's an emergency situation. We need the bailouts and we need to ensure that these companies survive in the short run because we can't replace them in the short run. And these are industries that we need to maintain our global infrastructure. Uh, But on the topic of buybacks, I'm going to take a contrarian view on them. So buybacks don't benefit employees or really stakeholders or uh, society in the short run, but you could argue that over the long run, and again, I'm not an advocate of 
taxpayer-funded buybacks. I think they should be severely limited in this case and restricted. But buybacks in general have been a dirty word over the past you know, few years. They've been so heavily engaged in. If they benefit shareholders, if they're accretive to the market capitalization of the company, the larger a company is, the more market cap they have, the more means they have to uh, borrow money and to expand their infrastructure, hire more people, increase employment, and benefit society. So I don't think share buybacks are completely evil. When done right, and especially when not taxpayer-funded, they do have a place in uh, corporate operations. I 100% I, I agree. Yes, you're right. Buybacks have become kind of like a taboo, a bad word in the finance world, but they're not inherently. The problem is when corporations use these buybacks at inappropriate times, like at 2008 when corporations bought back their stock after receiving money from the government, or let's say if they were to do it now, it's an inappropriate time. That, that money could go towards the employees, like you mentioned, because there's now tens of thousands of people that have just been laid off, furloughed, aren't getting money uh, all across the nation. So this, this money that these corporations have, especially at a time like this, could be used much better in other ways. And lastly, some points of view uh, from our previous expansion. The expansion, this 10-year expansion that we experienced and that it ended uh, in uh, March of 2020, it was mostly due to large firms buying back their stock. Now, with this being a huge outcry from society where buybacks are no longer acceptable, we may see our next rebound be not as great as our previous one due to this, where companies are now going to be less, um, I guess, less uh, prevailing in, in doing this practice than they were in the past. I think they'll continue to do it. Anything that's accretive to, you know, Increases earnings per shares, accretive to market cap, and especially accretive to executive pay is going to continue to persist. So there'll be more taboo, but I think we'll continue to see it. Yeah, Josh, I, I agree with that take as well. I mean, we've seen it in the past. I think we'll see it again. So China has dominated international headlines for the past few months, obviously due to the coronavirus. So let's just, let's tackle kind of what people are talking about. Um, recently, this week, China, Chinese officials came out and claimed that um, they, sorry, they adjusted their numbers from deaths in Wuhan from the coronavirus, and they increased it by almost exactly 50%. And the reason that number is significant is because some People in the international community, some officials in the U.S. and from other countries like France are saying that it's a little too neat, it's a little too convenient, and that they think that the reason it looks like that is actually because during the height of the crisis in Wuhan, Chinese officials hid the number of how many people had actually died from it. The ex Chinese officials have given the explanation that they've 
went through and revised and reviewed all the deaths to make sure that they truly account for everybody who died during the pandemic. Obviously, we'll never know for sure. Things were very chaotic there a few months ago. So that's just, there's this back and forth from other countries not really trusting China. And that continues even till today because China claims to have no or very few domestic cases that all the cases they do have are from flights that have come inbound, especially from Russia. And the international community doesn't know whether or not they can trust China and how much they're hiding. And obviously that's uh, very unfortunate because most of the data that we get um, and that we look at first comes from China because that's where the outbreak started. And so that's where we have the data first. So when we look, when epidemiologists and other professionals go to create models, they look to China where it unfolded first to gauge how this would happen and to gauge, can it come back or how bad will it come back? But if China is not being forthcoming in their information and they're manipulating the data, then we don't know. And our health officials over here in the United States just can't make proper models. Yeah, the situation we have with China is interesting because, you know, as we currently stand, the U.S. and many other countries are not close allies and are heavily conflicted with China. And China has its own personal interests that it wants to protect. There's a, a lack of trust. And it really poses the question and sets the precedent that how do we collaborate and interact in events like these that require collaboration and group effort, especially when we're uh, otherwise conflicted and fighting with each other. So I think that's another significant issue that's going to be talked about and uh, worked on on a global level. Because uh, we can't deal with events like these unless there's widespread collaboration. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops in the future. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if there was ever a time for the world to come together, it's now. So it's unfortunate that we're not seeing it, that happen as much as it should be. But in other news, another thing. Some other information we've got out of China is some economic data. So we can kind of estimate how bad the impact from the coronavirus will be short term, at least. And we can kind of prepare for that in the U.S. So the IMF uh, recently released, they expect that the global economy will contract by 3% this year. That's based on what we've seen so far. But... Uh, they expect China to grow by 1.2% still in 2020 and really catch up next year and grow 9.2% overall. So that's China. That's what's being expected there. So while we see the global economy contract, China will still have a little growth. Obviously, they've been heavily impacted by this. This is the first quarter since they started releasing GDP data that their economy has contracted. So it's a, it's a big deal for the Chinese economy. And obviously for the strength of their government there and their ideology, this is pretty much, it all boils down to their GDP. This is like their calling card. So it, there's a lot at play here. And lastly, a lot of G20 member states have called to forgive or even cancel completely 
uh, debt from African nations. And this is significant to China because China is actually the world's largest lender to African nations. A couple of years ago, they beat out the World Bank and they've lent more than $150 billion to African nations like Zimbabwe funding massive infrastructure works. Um, a lot of that is to bolster trade between the African Union and China. And another reason is to gain political influence there. Uh, what's significant about this is while other nations have called to cancel this debt, China has been against that so far, um, mainly because they have so much money there. And also it's suspected that they like to use uh, the money that is owed to them to help them gain political favor. We've seen this several times as African uh, nations have kind of sided with China in international incidents. Um, and then another thing that is very interesting about this scenario, though, is that African nations have actually publicly um, showed displeasure with China's unwillingness to forgive or cancel their debts. Um, that's significant because since China began heavily lending to these nations, they have handled any sort of conflict behind closed doors. So the rest of the global community is never really completely sure about the interactions between these two bodies, but um, this is the first time we're seeing them come out and publicly show that they're unhappy with this. And also with the treatment of some uh, African, African nation citizens living in China. Um, there's rumors that have come out that they've been pulled out of their homes, forced to be tested, are being mistreated. And so uh, members of African nations have actually went to China to discuss this, but have publicly, again, shown their displeasure with this, which is something that happens very, very rarely. Yep, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, one other thing about China is the economic metrics are something that the world isn't entirely sure that they can trust, and as well as the feasibility of their economic goals. They reported 17 million unemployed. Uh, it's the one of the largest unemployment numbers that we've seen in the past few decades, and we're not even sure whether that's accurate. Uh, same goes for their total GDP decline over the past quarter and past 40 years. I think it's 40 years that we've seen uh, them have as high a GDP decline as we have. Um, and the there are, one of the things that leading financial institution, institutions are suggesting is that China changes their... GDP goal, maybe instead of uh, a, having a goal to increase their GDP, change that to decreasing employment or another economic metric because of how little feasibility they have in reaching their GDP goal this year. So we'll see how that plays out. I think they're going to stick with the GDP goal, maybe reduce it, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that they should because it's not so realistic and also it'd be better just from a financial perspective. But I do think they will, for political reasons, stick with that GDP goal. But 
Moving on, Camden, do you want to do the term of the week? Yes. Today's term of the week is consumer cyclical. This refers to a stock or group of stocks that rely heavily on the business cycle. Consumer cyclical industries such as automotive, housing, entertainment, and retail. To get more information, we'll be sending out a special this week that will differentiate between consumer cyclical and consumer defensive. We would like to thank you all for joining in for our podcast this week. This week, we talked about what has taken place in the last couple of months, as well as our estimates and outlook for what we predict will come in the future. We also talked about deflation, share buybacks, and China. Josh? Can you tell us a little bit more about Panther Capital and what you have helped found? Great. So Panther Capital is an initiative that has been established not just by me, but by Camden and Matthew. And what it is, is it's the only student-managed investment fund that currently exists. So if you're a student listening to this and you go to a university in the U.S. and you're interested in pursuing a career in finance, you either have noticed or are bound to notice two problems. One, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for you to attain an internship while in college and a higher level position after you graduate. Uh, at a top tier investment fund and bulge bracket investment bank, and even at mid tier funds. And one big reason it's difficult for you to do that, beyond just the fact that you don't go to an Ivy League school, is you don't have the connections. And it's really difficult to build connections and build a Rolodex of people that you could rely on for referrals while you're in college. And your programs, clubs uh, that are offered by your school likely don't offer that. Second, you might be involved in what's called a student-managed investment fund or have one on your campus. And what that is, is it's usually a club or a class that's given an endowment by your school uh, for you to invest and you know take part as an analyst or learn how to invest, but it never properly approximates the experience of being in a real fund. You don't get any autonomy over the investment selection process. A professor or administrator always makes the final say, and you usually don't have a, a large variety of stocks that you could choose from. It's usually blue chip really risk-averse stocks like Google and Apple. So what the three of us have done and are currently doing is establishing our own independent student-managed investment fund as a nonprofit and naming it Panther Capital. Initially, we're going to be recruiting from UCSB, Chapman University, and UC Davis for our first year. Uh, we have a limited number of spots available. Only 10 students can be involved. And the way it's going to work is we're raising money, capital, that you're going to be able to invest as an analyst. You'll be involved as an analyst. And um, we're going to have an advisory board, an advisory board consisting of alumni from your school who are successful professionals in the finance industry. So we currently have 40 professionals who've graduated from UCSB, uh, Chapman and Davis, 
who are hedge fund managers, investment bankers, analysts, traders, who are interested in being your mentor. And by being involved in Panther Capital, you will get the opportunity to build personal relationships and be mentored by these professionals. And you know what the number one factor that correlates with your success after you graduate and anything you do is your mentorship and your connections, not just your GPA, not just you know the books and what you learned in school, but who do you know and your ability to network and expand. Uh, the people that you know. So that's what we're helping you with. Now, if you're interested in being involved, what you're going to want to do is go on LinkedIn and shoot me a message. Connect with me first, but go on linkedin.com slash I-N slash Josh Lipman, L-I-P is in Peter, M-A-N, slash connect with me shoot me a message say you're interested uh you can also email uh the alkanati campbell and associates email i'll let matthew or camden say what that is so any one of us either aca or myself you can email us and we'll let you know more about how to be involved great josh that was extremely well said Thank you for giving our listeners uh, an introduction to Panther Capital and letting them know what we're all about. We really hope to hear from some of you uh, regarding this great opportunity. You mentioned our email address. It's actually going to be in the podcast notes below this podcast. And we will also include a link to Josh's uh, LinkedIn. That way you guys can just click right on and add him on LinkedIn and get connected with us. If you guys all liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our newsletter, again, by clicking our website address in the podcast notes below. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's What's Up Finance podcast, and we'd love to hear your, email, uh, your feedback, so shoot us an email. Um, thank you, Camden. Thank you, Josh. Alex, unfortunately, had to leave in the middle of this podcast, but thanks to Alex as well. Yes, thank you all for joining. Thank you.